Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Proverbs chapter 18 actually is where we will begin uh, today. I did a little research in preparation uh, for this message and uh, found out that I was looking for the number of words that people speak in a given day, and I found out that men speak about 7,000 words a day, and women speak about 20,000 words a day. (laughs) So that's maybe not a surprise to to some of you. Um, So I started thinking, I, I wonder what else that we do on a regular basis, on a daily basis, would actually exceed that number. And so... Uh, found, I started looking about like the number of steps that we take in uh, a given day and found out that the typical person walks about 5,000 steps a day, so not quite as many words uh, as we speak. I thought about, I wonder how many times we swallow in a day and found out that we swallow about 2,000 times a day, so still falling short of the numbers of words that we speak uh, each day. But, but then I thought, how about the number of times we blink in a day and found out that we blink about 28,000 times a day. So blinking gets the award for the most common frequent activity that we do uh, in a day. Uh, but man or woman, we certainly speak a lot of words every single day. 7,000 words a day for men, 20,000 for women, When you combine that with what we heard earlier when John was up here and he read to us from James that the tongue can't be tamed, that through the tongue we set on fire the entire course of life, that's what it says in James. When you combine seven to 20,000 words a day with what James tells us about the dangers of the tongue, chances are we are easy to get ourselves into trouble with our tongues. Uh, Add to this just the presence of social media and uh, the additional amount of time we communicate, uh, not necessarily with our tongues, but with our fingers, and I wonder how many more words uh, we would be saying every day. Uh, Combine that with the fact that we are in this very tense political climate, and uh, quite frankly, we have a president who is not setting a very good example for us when it comes to the use of the tongue, and we see that there are increasing opportunities for us to use the tongue in a bad way. In fact, chances are high that many of you have used your tongue already today in a way that perhaps you regret in talking to family or friends, even on the way to church. Well, we are uh, in a sermon series now that we just began last week on the Proverbs and wisdom in particular that we receive through the Proverbs. And last week we just began with an introduction to this series. We looked at the very beginning of the book of Proverbs and uh, just learned a, a couple of things about wisdom. You might recall that we learned about the difference between wisdom and knowledge. There is a difference between the two. Knowledge is kind of the gaining of information and facts But wisdom is the ability to take those things that we know and apply them to our lives. Um, A very short definition of wisdom is the art of godly living. 
Don Hazlett and I were talking a little bit after the sermon last week and uh, came up with a good example of the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit, right? Wisdom is knowing not to put it on a fruit salad, right? Difference between knowledge and wisdom. Good additional example uh, of that. So we talked about that last week. Um, we also learned that wisdom and the Proverbs should not be considered as law for us. Um, Proverbs should not be read like the Ten Commandments. The Proverbs are more like God's kind, patient, gracious assistance that he's giving to us through the Proverbs to help us who are confused and challenged in so many different ways as we stumble our way through life. God gives us the Proverbs to kind of walk alongside us and help us with the gray areas and difficulties that we face regularly. And then we also learned last week just about the value of wisdom. The scriptures are very clear in their command. Get wisdom. And the Proverbs would tell us that wisdom is even better than gold. More valuable than wealth and riches is wisdom. And today now as we start uh, for the next few Sundays looking at the various topics that are covered in the Proverbs, we are beginning today with the topic of words. Um, of all the different topics, and there are many, that are covered in the book of Proverbs, the one getting the most attention is words, speech, communication, or what I'm calling the power of the tongue. So we heard that in James, and we see it throughout the book of Proverbs, and so that's what we're considering today. You can see the schedule, the t other topics that we'll be covering from Proverbs in the lifeline that'll list those out for the next uh, six or eight weeks so you can see where we're headed. But um, the way the Proverbs are organized is, is that um, each chapter just has a collection of Proverbs that, that seem to be kind of arbitrarily or randomly placed. So uh, really the best way to uh, go through the Proverbs, in my opinion, is to kind of group up different Proverbs under certain headings. And so we're going to be jumping around Proverbs. Um, you know, there isn't one chapter on words, for instance. They're spread throughout the whole book. So I will begin with our reading by just reading two Proverbs to us, um, and then we will consider a number of others as we go through the message. So if you'd please stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to look at Proverbs 18.21, and then I'll read chapter 12, verse 25, and read just those two Proverbs to start things off. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. And then going back to chapter 12, <clears throat> verse 25, Proverbs 12.25, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Father, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would guide us as we look at your Proverbs, that we might be wise in the way we use our words. Please, Lord, bless us, equip us, help us as your word is preached. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> So two things that I'm going to show you here from the Proverbs, and again, we'll be gathering various Proverbs under each of these points, but the first point is this, words 
can be destructive and life-taking. Words can be destructive and life-taking. And we see that here in this verse that I read from Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so for this first point, we're thinking mostly about death being in the power of the tongue. The power to give life or to take life is in the power of the tongue. The stakes are very high when we use our tongues. In fact, when you think about how the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 3, what is the way that Satan was able to entice Eve to doubt the goodness of God and then to lead her husband to eat the fruit and to send all of humanity into sin? His tongue. Satan used his tongue to bring destruction and to take life from the entire human race. And that's what's hinted at here in Proverbs 18.21. Sometimes you hear this cliche that says, time heals all wounds. And you know what? In some cases that's true, but in some cases it isn't. Time doesn't always heal the wounds that are created by destructive words. Our our destructive words can be forgiven, yes, but they're not always forgotten, are they? And there are some of you, many of you, who are still, later in life, trying to wrestle with and process destructive, life-taking, hurtful things that have been said to you in your past by parents, by friends, by a boss, by a spouse, and those words are just branded into your head. The stakes are high. That's what Proverbs 18.21 is saying. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So let's look at the Proverbs to see specific ways that the Proverbs can be destructive. So I'm going to give you five examples here. One way that words can be destructive is that they can be contentious. So chapter 26 verse 21 in Proverbs says this, as charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. I happen to have a a charcoal grill, that's the way I prefer to to cook out, and uh, if you have cooked with the charcoal grill, you know what this verse is talking about, as charcoal to hot embers. You put charcoal under the heat, and it doesn't take long before they're red hot. And what the passage is saying here is that the person who is quarrelsome and contentious is just like wood to fire, charcoal to hot embers. That person heats up conversations quickly, and through that ends up burning down relationships. You you all know what it's like. You've met people like this. They're, They're never happy with anything that you say. Everything needs to be corrected. You're never quite precise enough. You say one thing, and they say, well, actually, let me correct you, and off you go into some debate. These are the people who love to argue about Obamacare and about abortion and about gun rights and about Calvinism and about millennial views and about baptism. They can't wait for a fight. That's the contentious person. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have opinions or deep convictions 
on any of these issues that I just mentioned. We, we should, and we should be prepared to talk about them and discuss them. That's the difference, though, between the person who is contentious, quarrelsome, looking for an argument. It's one way we can use the word, our words in a destructive way. Uh, another way, impulsive use of our words. Chapter 25, verse 28 says this, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. This is referring to the person who is caught up in the heat of the moment. His or her emotions are welling up, and the person speaks out of this passion that's just flowing out of his or her heart without thinking very carefully about what he's saying. So a good example of this is Peter in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, very famous story. Jesus is speaking to Peter, telling Peter, Peter, I've, I've, I'm going to be arrested by the chief priests. They're, they're going to put me to death. I'm going to suffer, Peter. And Peter says, no way, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. Just speaking impulsively, just blurting something out without even thinking about it. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You've spoken out of turn. You haven't thought about my mission, the reason I have come, and that is to lay down my life to save sinners. Wisdom, you'll see repeatedly in the book of Proverbs, wisdom values the mouth that is closed. In many cases, I, I mean, I, I'm guessing if you think in your past, you're probably a lot more regretful about things that you said than about things that you didn't say. Although there is a time to speak up, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but most of us are probably more regret thinking, man, I sure wish I could take back that thing I said to my wife or to my child, rather than thinking, oh, I sure wish I would have spoken up in this situation or that. Most of us can benefit by keeping our mouths closed a little longer. You've heard the the proverb, it's not actually in the Bible, but better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt, right? Well, the proverbs just say it a little bit different. 1728, a fool is the one who keeps, um, no, a fool who keeps silent is considered wise, it says. So, so that's a little different. I mean, you can be a, a very foolish person but because you keep your mouth shut, people look at you and they don't hear what you're saying. They think you're very wise. They think you're a, a mature person because, in, because you haven't opened your mouth um, to dispel that notion. So impulsive words can be destructive. <clears throat> the third kind of destructive word in the Proverbs, those that promote sin, 2424 says this, whoever says to the wicked you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. Anybody using his mouth to call sin a good thing or to call a good thing sin, well, the Proverbs describes this person in very direct language. Cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. We all have this tendency, don't we? we? Particularly when our culture starts embracing certain sins, we want so bad to kind of go along with the stream, and we want to kind of rationalize it and act like it's not that big of a deal. 
And certainly we've seen this with the whole gay marriage issue in our country, where even in the church, people are rising up and saying, I just don't see the problem with that. And many saying, actually, I think it's a good thing. That's what Proverbs is talking about. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, whoever looks at a sin and says it's a good thing, is using words in a destructive way. This doesn't just refer to gay marriage, but anything, materialism or divorce or racism, anything that we rationalize and excuse and try to make it seem less sinful or serious than it really is, using words in a destructive way. Fourth, the use of words in a deceitful way is destructive. 26, 28. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Again, do you notice how blunt and direct these proverbs are? A lying tongue hates its victims. Lies are rooted in hate, and those who are lied to are considered victims, according to the proverbs. And there are a number of different ways that deceit is pictured in the book of Proverbs. Uh, One way is just uh, a false witness in court. A person who's called to testify doesn't tell the truth. One way that words can be used deceitfully. Uh, We see another way here in this passage, a flattering mouth. Flattery is a kind of deceit. Flattery is when you praise somebody, you build somebody up, you affirm the person, but you're not really speaking sincerely. You don't really believe what you're saying. You're building up the person because, quite frankly, you want something from it. You're manipulating the person to get that person to do something that you would like. So you say nice things that you don't really mean. It's a form of deceit. Gossip, of course, (coughs) is another form of deceit. Um, The way the Proverbs describe the person who gossips is by uh, saying it this way, that it's the words of a whisperer. So very often uh, gossip begins like this. The person says, don't tell anybody what I'm about to say, but so-and-so. You know, saying it kind of quiet, whispering. You don't want everybody to hear. And and you just kind of relish sharing this kind of, you know, shady story about another person. And isn't it true that we just love to listen to gossip? When someone leans in and talks to you that way, don't don't tell anybody what I'm about to say. Man, you're all ears, aren't you? Just you can't wait to hear. When probably the proper thing to do is is to maybe slow down a second. If If you're about to run down somebody's reputation, I'd rather you take it up with them and say it to me. I heard this illustration, I think I've maybe used this before, but I think it's a, a good way to describe the, the damage that gossip can do in a church. Um, <clears throat> there's uh, the story of a, a pastor and a, uh, a guy comes to the pastor and says, I understand that gossip is a bad thing, but I don't really get it. I don't see what's so bad about it. And so the pastor says, well, here's what I want you to do. Uh, go home, get out a pillow, go up on top of your roof, and take a knife and open up that pillow and then come back and see me. So the guy does that, gets the pillow, goes on his roof, opens up the pillow, and of course the feathers just fly out all over the place. Out on the grass, 
in the tree in the neighbor's driveway. So the guy goes back to the pastor and says, well, I did it. The pastor says, what happened? He says, I got up there, I cut open the pillow, feathers flew all over the place. And then the pastor says, now here's what I want you to do. Go back and gather up all of those feathers and put them back in the pillowcase. The guy says, I can't do that. That's impossible. And the pastor says, and that's what's wrong with gossip. That's what gossip does. Just things get from one person to another person to another person before long. It's out of hand, and you can't gather it all back up. And that's a form of deceit. There's even another kind of deceit that the Proverbs talk about in chapter 26, 18 and 19. I'm just going to call this kind of a sly kind of deceit. It talks about the person who, who deceives his neighbor and then says, I'm only joking. So this is the person who comes in, lies, tells a white lie somehow in order to intend to hurt the neighbor, but when he's called out on it, he says, no, 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 I, I didn't really mean that. I was just joking. It was a joke. I was just messing around. No big deal. Don't take me seriously. But the damage is already done. The person's already lied. The person's already hated his victim. But he tries to get out from under it by saying it was a joke. It's a form of deceit. I mean, people who do that, they think somehow they're squirting out from you know, underneath the problem here, but the Proverbs is on to you, friend, if that's the kind of deceit that you're engaged in. All of these forms of deceit are, are the works of hate, according to the Proverbs. One last thing, <clears throat> spreading dissension is another way we can use our words in a destructive way. This passage is a, a little longer from chapter 6. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, what the commentators will tell you is that when in Hebrew literature you have a list of things like this, generally the idea is that the last thing listed is supposed to be the one that has the biggest kick, the kind of the climax of, of the list, the thing that is most important to the one speaking. And that would be those who sow discord or dissension among brothers. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine that that could be worse than shedding innocent blood. But that's the way this passage is, is written. I mean, you, you want to know one good way to... Dis you know, one of the reasons why this might be such a serious thing in the eyes of God is that I don't know of any better way to destroy a church than to start, start sowing discord among brothers and sisters. To start complaining about one group of people to another group of people. To set people against each other. To get people to doubt each other and be suspicious of each other. A good way to bring down a church. And it's a very destructive use of words. So, th those are just a few examples. There's many more in the book of Proverbs, but the basic point is this, friends. Your tongue has power. So, how are you using it? Husbands, how have you been using your tongue in speaking to your wife? Wives, how have you been using your tongue in speaking to your husband? 
Parents, how have you been using your tongue in the way you speak to your children? And children, how are you using your tongue in the way you speak to your parents? Students, how do you use your tongue in the way you speak to your teachers? Brothers and sisters, how do you use your tongue in the way you speak to each other? Roommates, how do you use your tongue in the way you talk to your friends and the people in your house? How do you use your tongue or your fingers on Facebook and Twitter? Are you using your words to tear down and to destroy? Or are you using your words, and we move on to the second point here, to be affirming and life-giving? That this is the other option that we have before us. And this is what we'll see in the Proverbs. They're always setting this contrast between the, the wise person and the foolish person. And Proverbs is just constantly presenting to us, look, you have an option. There's one way here and there's another way here. What, what are you going to do? Are you going to be wise in your speech or foolish in your speech? Are you going to be life-taking in your speech or life-giving in your speech? And so let's look at some examples of the ways we can use our tongue in an affirming or life-giving way. And so, uh, again, chapter 12, verse 25 that I read at the start of the message. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. I mean, isn't that remarkable that a person can be weighed down by so many worries and troubles and concerns and fears and just filled with dread, and then someone comes along with just a good word and his heart is glad. I mean, it's like a good word changes everything. It's the power of the tongue. I mean, I, I think you can save a person's life by using your tongue well. As, as some of you know probably about Chester Bennington. He was the lead singer of the group Lincoln Park. July 20th, committed suicide. And a few days afterward, his fellow bandmates wrote a letter, posted it on the internet, um, to their friend and band named Chester Bennington. And they said things like this. They said, Chester, you've touched so many lives. You were the best husband and the best son and the best dad. You were ambitious. You were creative. You were kind and generous. And they ended the letter by saying, our lives are made better by you. Now, I just wonder how it might have affected Chester Bennington if those words were said to him before July 20th rather than after. Now, I'm not trying to blame the man's suicide on his bandmates. bandmates. They're, they're, I'm not, they're not responsible for that. Chester Bennington is responsible for his own actions. But nonetheless, the point stands. What a good, that good word, what a good word they wrote. But how much better it would have been if Chester actually had heard it so what are some ways that we can be affirming and life-giving in our words? Well, we can be thoughtful, first of all. 1623, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. The, judi the judicious person is the one who's, who's careful and, and prudent in what he says. This is one of the problems with social media. It's just that People don't really have to be very prudent. They can say whatever they want, and anybody can speak. 
and say whatever he wants. It's like everybody feels like they have the equal right to say what they want, but not everybody is equally informed about the things that they're talking about. Later on, chapter 18, verse 2, it says, The fool is the person who takes no pleasure in understanding, only in expressing his opinion. He's not concerned about whether he's actually informed or whether he really understands the subject that he's talking about. All he wants to do is get his opinion out because he's been told that one opinion is as good as another. But that's not true. Not one opinion. There are some opinions that are more informed, wise, and carefully thought out than others. And Christians ought to be people who think carefully about what they say, to be thoughtful before they open their mouths. This is kind of the corollary of the impulsive speech that I mentioned earlier. Secondly, words can be affirming when they're timely. Chapter 25, verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Uh, Many of you know that one of the things that makes a comedian so good is the person's timing. It's essential to good comedy. I mean, you can get two comedians saying the exact same joke, but the one uses timing better than the other, and the one who uses timing is is hilarious, and the other one just has no effect on you whatsoever. It's the same thing in the words that we say to people. Timing has everything to do with whether our words are affirming and a blessing to people. Friends, it's possible that you can have a very good thing to say, a good word, but it might not be the right time to say it. And, you know, I know you're asking, well, how do I know when the right time to say it is? You know, that's just something that, that only experience and wisdom and prayer is going to help you with. I mean, it's going to be different in, in every situation. But just because you have a good thing to say doesn't mean it's the right time to say it. You know, sometimes people will say the right thing. They'll say a good word, but they do it kind of resentfully. You know, well, I apologized. You know, I complimented him. I said what I was supposed to say, as if just saying it at any given time makes it the right thing to say. Well, if you said it at the wrong time, it's it's not going to be helpful. There's another example of this in the Proverbs, 27 verse 14. It says, the person who rises early in the morning to bless his neighbor will be counted as cursing. (laughs) What could possibly be wrong with wanting to bless your neighbor? Neighbor, you're looking great today. I appreciate how you're keeping your lawn. I want you to have a great day. I love you. You're my neighbor. You can say that to a person, but you say it at 6 a.m., and they think you're cursing them. It's timing. It was a good thing to say, but it was said at the wrong time. Gentleness is another way that our words can be affirming. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This has to do not so much with the content and the actual words that we choose, but with the, the tone of voice that we use. Just, the, just whether we allow... Um, the wrath that seems to be coming toward us to elicit out of us a harsh word. That's the question, and that's when we want to lash out the most, isn't it? When someone's coming after us. But it's a soft answer that turns away that wrath. 
I, I had this experience um, a, a couple of summers ago. A neighbor came over, and some of you know about some repeated issues we've had with our neighbors regarding dogs. And I had a neighbor who was just on the other side, not, not, not actually on the sides of our house, but over the, over the fence out of the backyard on the other street. And um, she had a dog, and, and, and we have a dog, and our dogs were kind of going at it, you know, at the fence. And so she came around and knocked on the door and said, and just kind of came, came after me, you know. Our dogs are fighting all the time, and I think your dog is out there agitating my dog. And I'm thinking... I think your dog is agitating my dog. Well, my dog has a, you know, it's got a little cut on its nose now. And I was like, wow, I don't know how that would happen, but, you know, there was a little bit of area under the fence, and the dogs are kind of getting their noses underneath the fence, and maybe one bit the other, I don't know. But <clears throat> I'm feeling a little defensive here. But by the grace of God, I, I just said, you know, I could just tell she was concerned for the safety of her dog. And she's a dog lover, and I'm a dog lover. And so I just said, I know that you want your dog cared for, and I love dogs too, and so you know, I'll do the best I can to kind of keep an eye on my dog. When he starts going back to the fence, I'll try to pull him in. And man, I could just feel the tension de-escalate. <laughs> and we had a friendly conversation and uh, parted, and I, I think um, a potential tense situation was avoided by by a soft answer. So that's a way to affirm. Um, a couple more examples here of affirming life-giving words. Now these last two have to do with the time where we should speak up. So you know, I mentioned earlier that we're mostly benefited when we keep our mouths shut, but that doesn't mean we should keep our mouths shut all the time. There are times when we should speak up. And again, it's a matter of experience and life and wisdom to be able to tell the difference. But, but one time when you ought to speak up is addressed here in 27, 5, and 6, where it says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. There are times when we need to speak up and challenge our brothers and sisters in Christ because we see something in their lives that we know is not pleasing to God. And this is just so hard to do because we live in this culture that says we ought to tolerate everything and that anytime you challenge anybody, you're being judgmental and so Christians just keep their mouths shut. But what does it say? An open rebuke. A rebuke involves a judgment and a challenge that is issued to somebody. That's a whole lot better than hiding your love. In other words, to openly rebuke somebody is a form of loving them. Maybe you have somebody who's, they're, they're not married and they're sexually active. They're, they've withdrawn themselves from the church. You haven't seen them here in three or four months. They just seem to have cut themselves off from God's people. Maybe they're starting to experiment with, with drugs. You know, God has you in that person's life for a reason. You've got to speak up. You've got you to challenge that person. That's wisdom. Now, you've got to be careful how you do that, of course, and there's some things that you can ask, number one, before you rebuke somebody. You just don't want to go out just rebuking everybody that you see doing something wrong. You can ask yourself, am I the right person to do this, number one, because notice what it says, better is uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So the implication is that generally it's a friend who is speaking this way to another friend. Are you the right person? Do you have a relationship with this person? Uh, you can ask, am I using the right word? 
That is, are you going to rebuke or challenge in accordance with what the Bible says about something, or is this just an opinion of yours? If it's just an opinion, then you probably shouldn't be rebuking. But if it's something clearly laid out in the scriptures, perhaps you should. Uh, You can ask, am I speaking in the right way? And so you can just review what we've talked about already, thoughtfully, timely, gently. It's the right way. And you can ask, uh, am I choosing the right time? So I already mentioned that, timely. Are you the right person? Do I have the right word? Am I speaking the right way? Am I choosing the right time? But if those are answered in the affirmative, it could be that God uh, has someone for you to challenge. And then the the last thing here is uh, being supportive. That is a way to use our words in an affirming way where we are called to speak up and not be silent, and that is to be supportive. Look what it says in chapter 31. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the poor and needy. When you see people who are victimized, who have no voice, who have nobody to speak on their behalf, you can't watch that carelessly and remain quiet. You need to speak up. Open your mouth for the mute. I mean, when I read that verse, I thought, who... Who is it that has no voice at all? Who is it that can't say anything for themselves? And I thought the unborn certainly qualify. They can't speak. They need someone to speak on their behalf. It's an opportunity for Christians to speak up. Martin Luther King said, we will remember not so much the words of our enemies as the silence of our friends during the civil rights fight in the 60s. So, Is there someone, friends, who needs your rebuke? Is there someone who needs your support, Christian? And will you speak up, or will you remain silent? Now, it's easy to hear a message like this and to be absolutely crushed by guilt. (laughs) To to just be thinking of all of the words you shouldn't have said, but you did, and all the words you shouldn't, uh, you should have said, uh, but didn't. And and so, I, I, I just... You know, we just got to keep going back to the gospel, friends, or, or we will be absolutely demoralized when we talk and think and reflect on the way we use our tongues. Friends, we have a great Savior in Jesus. The Bible says there was no deceit found on his lips. When people listened to Jesus talk, according to John chapter 7, they said, no one has ever spoken like this man. Jesus' words were always timely, always loving, always thoughtful, always appropriate. He always spoke at the right time and said the right thing at the right time. And so when he went and died on the cross, here's one thing for sure. He didn't die for any destructive words that he had to say. He died for the destructive words that you have said. He died for your harsh words, your untimely words, your deceitful words, your contentious words and he paid the penalty for this and he removed the wrath of God from you for those things that you have said and so now we hear the the most wonderful life giving word that we could ever hear it's the word of the gospel Proverbs 18.21 the power of life is in the power of the tongue well it was the tongue of Jesus who said this 
I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Whoever hears my word. That's the word from Jesus about what he has done for people who use their tongues poorly. And that is good news. Thank God that he doesn't hold our words against us. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And that's what should put on our tongues a desire to sing and praise such a good God as this. So I'm going to pray, and that's what we're going to do. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of the Proverbs. Help us, God. Help us to speak wisely. Um, Convict us of the ways we have used our tongue poorly. And keep our ears attentive always, Lord, to the words of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.